I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, or turn on your Bibles, whatever the case may be. 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, first of all, I want to say thank you to our elder George Wood for preaching last weekend. That was an incredible sermon, brother. Thank you for that. And I don't say incredible just because, hey, that was really nice, but no. I walked away going, I understand our shepherd leader even that much more. And I love the heart of our great shepherd that much more. So thank you for that, brother. Yeah. You know, we come to our final message in the letter of 1 Peter. And up to this point, just for the sake of super brief review, uh, Peter has addressed a number of themes, but themes that are closely related to one another. Um, right from the get-go, you might recall from Peter's first remarks in First in Peter chapter 1, he is drawing the attention of his listeners or hearers, uh, the onlookers, to this glorious salvation that they have received. And of course, he does so because the context in which Peter is addressing his listeners is a context of suffering. He knows that many of these brothers and sisters in Christ are going through a, a great deal of trouble, persecution, and it's only going to intensify even more. And so Peter says this, look at this glorious salvation. Yes, life right now may be a struggle. It's, it's, it kind of stinks, in fact, but guess what? You have something that awaits you that cannot be taken from you. And so he draws their attention to this amazing salvation that God provided on their behalf, even though suffering would be inevitable in their life. And then he also helps these believers understand, remember first and foremost, you are not at home. You are a, what, we, what he called a sojourner. You're an alien. You're a temporary resident, but you are not at home. In other words, this glorious salvation, this eternal dwelling place that God has saved you to, guess what? This life, everything that is wrapped up in this life is what we call temporary. It's what James refers to as a, a vapor, right? It comes in brief, just for a brief moment, and it leaves. And he says, because you are sojourners, on, in, in, in a sense, a temporary residence who is not at home, how then should we conduct ourselves as Christians, as followers of Jesus, followers of the way? And so he gives us, he kind of goes throughout his letter, helping us better understand how Christians ought to conduct themselves in a variety of contexts. For example, we talked about Christian conduct as citizens. We talked about Christian conduct as employees or employers. We, he talked about Christian conduct in, the, in marriage and in the church and in a hostile world in which we find ourselves, and even Christian conduct in the last days. We talked about what a shepherd leader truly is, and then today we come to Peter's final words to us. So if you're not there yet, or hopefully you are there already, I'm going to start reading in verse, the second part of verse 5 of 1 Peter chapter 5, and I'll read through verse 11. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. 
Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's a book, I've kind of highlighted it uh, a while back, but the book is called The Last Lecture. Not sure if you've read it or not. The Last Lecture is written by a college professor who also happened to be a husband and a father, and he's giving his final lecture to the student body and the staff before he dies, specifically at the place of Carnegie Mellon. And in his lecture, he offers words of wisdom and experience gained both from his successes as well as his failures in life. And his intent in giving this final lecture before he dies of his his terminal ailment, he's basically trying to kind of emphasize this point. If I could say one thing, one final thing to you, this is what I would say. Or to put it in another way, if you forget everything I've taught you over the years, If you forget every kind of side conversation that we've had over the years, remember this. Don't forget this. I think in a very similar way, this is really how Peter is concluding his letter to these believers in Asia Minor. We see in his letter that Peter hones in by emphasizing one final, very important truth Really, really an exhortation that summarizes all that has been said up to this point. And that summarization can be concluded in one word. Humility. Peter is basically saying, if I could say one thing or emphasize one crucial foundational truth to not forget to reflect on and to chew on every day of our lives, it would be humility. Peter says to humble yourself. Clothe yourself with humility. Now, I know that for a number of us in here, we probably have some idea or definition of what humility is, right? We all have some uh, understanding of what humility might be. And if I were to kind of have an open mic session right now, we might have some really good definitions coming from all of you. If I were to summarize humility, at least the way I understand it most distinctly, humility is seeing yourself as you really are. Not as you wish you were. Not as you think you are. Humility is seeing yourself as you really are. Which is why Paul, the apostle, would say in Romans 12, 3, he says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, to think clearly about who you really are. Now, we must understand that humility does not mean you think about yourself less than you are. It just means that you think of yourself accurately. You see yourself Clearly, I I always appreciate Tim Keller's definition of, of humility when he says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself, 
an exaggerated view of myself, and it's not thinking less of myself, kind of a woe-is-me attitude. It's thinking of myself less. Humility is not thinking more of myself. It's not thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. In other words, we exercise and live out this posture and attitude and perspective of humility when we are less consumed with us and therefore freed up to be consumed with the needs and well-being of others. Probably the best way to understand humility is by contrasting this virtue with its opposite, with its antithesis, right? What is that? What would that be, you think? What's the opposite of humility? Pride. Yeah, I didn't have to tell you. You know. I think C.J. Mahaney, he actually wrote uh, in his, one of his little, his book on humility was, he did a great job contrasting pride versus humility. And, and let me just relay his summary thoughts for us this morning. He says, pride is a vice, but humility is a virtue. In fact, humility is the foundational, is foundational to all other virtues. It precedes all forms of godliness. Pride is our greatest enemy, but humility is our greatest friend. Pride is when we compare ourselves to other people. Humility is when we compare ourselves to Jesus. Pride covets or desires the success of others, mostly because we want that success. Humility celebrates the success of others. There's a genuine happiness for the achievement that others attain to. Pride is about me. Humility is about Jesus and others. Pride is about my glory. Humility is about the glory of God. Pride is I am God, little g God. Humility is Jesus is God, the only God. Pride is the anti-God state of mind. Humility elevates the majesty and awesomeness of God. Pride leads to arrogance and cockiness. Look how amazing I am, right? But humility leads to confidence in what God thinks about me. Pride is independent or self-sufficient. I don't need anybody. But humility is dependent. I need God, and I need the help of others. Pride is the mother of all sin, whereas humility is the mother of all joy. Pride is something that we can achieve in this life, but humility is something that we must continually pursue in this life. Pride kills a church, but humility builds a church. Now, at this point, it's more than likely that all for all of us in here that we will conclude that pride is bad and humility is good, right? Even non-Christians, for the most part, will acknowledge or agree to that. Pride is bad. Humility is good. But knowing that pride is bad and that humility is good doesn't necessarily keep us from being prideful, 
let alone it doesn't necessarily mean that we are actually humble. So Peter here, in his final thoughts, his final emphasis to his listeners, he says, humble yourself, clothe yourself towards one another, with humility towards one another. And he gives us two reasons as to why we should make this our effort, our daily effort toward one another. The first reason is is somewhat of a warning, actually. It's an encouragement as well as a warning. Peter says, we ought to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another, first and foremost, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's a direct quote, really, almost from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, where Solomon the sage says, toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. If you know the the book of James, James almost verbatim says the exact same thing, but the point that Peter emphasizes here that we must kind of come to grips with is this, nothing could be worse for you than for God to set Himself against you. Nothing could be worse for you than for God to set Himself against you. What does Hebrews 10.31 says? It said, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. But then there's the contrast, right? But nothing could all at the same time be more important for you than to be on the receiving end of God's grace, to be on the receiving end of God's favor upon your life. So one of the reasons that Peter gives here, we should pursue humility. We need to clothe ourselves humility first and foremost because God opposes you if you don't, but he showers you with grace if you do. In fact, the second point, it goes, goes quickly on the heels of the first. The, another reason why we ought to pursue humility in our lives is because God exalts the one who humbles himself. Isaiah 66 says, I will bless those who have, hum- who have humble and contrite hearts, who tremble at my word. Jesus says in Luke 14, he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles, humbles himself will be exalted. So according to Peter, after all that has been said, this posture, this attitude, the mindset, the perspective And the way of life of most importance that is foundational to all other forms of godliness is the virtue of humility. Now, it's one thing to know, yeah, that's probably a good thing, but how in the world do I actually do that? How do I become a humble person? And you know, right, if you pray for humility, watch out in a good way but in a humbling way, right? You know, it's the classic, Lord, make me patient. Okay, I will. And it's always the the hard way, right? Because those prayers always reveal what's really in your heart. Lord, how how do I adopt this posture and attitude towards my fellow brethren? How do I do this? Peter gives us one strategy. Now, it's interesting. You need to understand, Peter's giving this strategy because it seems a little unorthodox. We might think like, oh, here's the three steps to, to, to navigate, our, navigate our way towards this place of humility. But the context in which Peter is writing to these listeners is a context of suffering, remember. 
And so these people that are struggling in their faith, they're, 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 they're hanging in there by their, by their greatest efforts. They're listening to the Lord. The Spirit of God is sustaining them, but there's, it doesn't go without difficulty. It has been very trying in their lives. And as he encourages them, he says, humble yourself before one another and do it like this. He says, by casting all your anxieties on him, verse 7, because he cares for you. How do we pursue a posture, an attitude of humility? Well, according to Peter, he says, by casting all our anxieties onto him. Now, anxieties literally means to be divided in mind. It means to be divided in thinking. In other words, anxieties, burdens, worries, they divide our thinking and they render us helpless to think about anything else, right? Anxieties can become all-consuming. Anybody in here ever toss and turn most of the night because of something kind of heavy on your heart or mind? You're like, man, I just wish this would go away. But in all bluntness, you know why we do that? It's because we're not in control like we wish we were. It's because we cannot control our circumstances like we would, like we would hope to. It's because we struggle to wait patiently on the Lord to vindicate us. And so, because we're in this place of tension, we struggle and we're worked up. And the last thing we can do is sleep. And yet, Peter says, humble yourselves. How? Even in your suffering, whatever that suffering may be, humble yourselves toward one another casting all your anxieties onto him. What does Jesus say in the gospel? He says, my burden is light. Cast your yoke upon me. Put your yoke on me. My burden is light. Let me take this for you. What is actually Jesus doing there? What he's inviting us to do is to stop controlling your circumstances and letting God do what God is really good at. Letting God take control because guess what? He's the only one who is actually in control. He's the only one who can oftentimes fix your circumstances or redeem your suffering. And if you have the ability to fix or redeem it, then just do it because it's within your power or control to do it. But oftentimes we are brought into a place or to a place in which we can't fix whatever this is. We're powerless to change our circumstances, and that is why God says, cast these unto me, give them to me. In fact, it is our trust in God, our trust in God is contingent upon the fact that we have a humble view of ourselves. A mindset of humility says, I can't, but God, you can The mindset of humility says, God, I trust you. I'll do my part. I'll exert whatever effort that you require of me. But in the end, Father, you are going to be the one that has to show up. You are the one who has to redeem my humble state at a time that you determine and also in the way in which you determine. Think of the story of Joseph, right? Not just the story, the life of Joseph. Put yourself in Joseph's sandals. You go, you share your visions and dreams with your brothers. And instead of them going, wow, that's amazing, Joseph, they hate you for it. 
They already know you're the favored son, which that's a whole nother conversation. And so he goes out, and instead of, and at first the brother's going like, we're done with this guy. We are done with our younger brother, and so we are going to kill him. God, in his sovereignty, goes, nope. Judas steps in and says, we're not going to kill him, so they sell him into slavery. He sold it to a, a, a family, Potiphar, who's kind of a, he's the captain of the guard, and Potiphar's wife. He rises to the surface. They love him. He's, he's respectable. He's honest. He does what he needs to do. So much so that Potiphar's wife is actually kind of attracted to him. Makes a move on him. In his righteousness, he flees. Gets set up, wrongly accused, thrown into Pharaoh's jail. Well, that's unfortunate. Doing the right thing, you get punished even more. And then a couple years later, two of Pharaoh's servants come in, the cupbearer and the baker. And they have these dreams, and they're troubled by them. And by God's grace... Joseph is able to interpret their dreams, and they come true. And he says to, the, he says to them when they leave, especially the, not the baker because he dies, but the cupbearer, don't forget about me. Guess what? He forgets for who knows how long, another couple years. Imagine the, the state of mind Joseph must have been in that moment. Until Pharaoh has a troubling dream and no one can interpret it. And finally the cupbearer goes, wait a second, there's a Hebrew in jail. I think he's alive. That could probably interpret this. And he gets brought out, probably cleaned up, no doubt. Interprets Pharaoh's dream and becomes second in command of all of Egypt. And as Joseph concludes, even to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God actually intended for good. God sent me to Egypt through some unfortunate means, of course, but God sent me to Egypt to ultimately save you. And the irony is the the visions and dreams that Joseph had as a younger age actually came true. Or think of Daniel, right? Daniel He gets the short end of the stick every time he does the right thing. He follows God. He does not compromise. Most of the time, he he receives favor because of it, but in the end, people hate him for it. Some of these guys are jealous because they're not getting the same kind of favor or attention as the ruler, and so guess what happens? He gets thrown into a den of lions. These guys are like, finally, this guy, this troublemaker is out of our hair, but God redeems in his timing, and in his way. You see, the state of mind and the the perspective and the attitude of Christians is the virtue of humility that says, God, I trust you. I trust you. The point is, God is the one that takes care of us. He is the one who comes to our aid. He, as verse 10 says, will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. So we're invited, much like the psalmist in chapter 55 says, cast your burden onto the Lord and He will sustain you. Isn't that reassuring? Isn't that reassuring? Isn't Isn't it comforting to know that your heavenly daddy is so good that He will provide for all your needs? Isn't it comforting to know that your heavenly daddy is so aware of your circumstances 
that he will not neglect you, but give you wisdom in your journey of navigation. Isn't it so comforting to know that God is so present with you that he will never allow you to be alone in your circumstances, no matter where you find yourself? That's who God is. That's what he promises to you. Well, no sooner does Peter encourage us with these divine promises and really invite us into this place of rest and reassurance that he also sounds the alarm. Wake up! Watch out! Now, why in the world would Peter go from like, thank you, Lord, to getting our attention kind of in a very subtle way? I mean, after all, he just encourages us. God is the one who's going to redeem us. He's the one who's going to restore and establish and strengthen us. He's the one who's going to see our humble state of mind, and he's going to restore us. He's going to exalt the humble, and he's going to oppose the proud. We're supposed to rest in this assurance and promise and goodness. Then while all of a sudden we kind of caught out of our slumber, so to speak, and called to wake up and watch out and be on the alert because we have an enemy that wants to take us out. That's why. We have an enemy, as Jesus says in John 10.10, that comes to steal and kill and destroy. We have an enemy as, that goes around, as Peter says, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour in verse 8. Now, who is this enemy that Peter is referencing here? Well, Peter refers to him as your adversary, the devil. We have an enemy called your adversary, the devil. Note that Peter says he is not just an adversary, he is your adversary, meaning that he is directly opposed to you. He is directly against you because you belong to God and God loves you. And the enemy hates everything that God loves, so you, by association, are an enemy of the devil. And because the devil hates you, his desire is to take you out. And you know what? He's really good at it. He's been doing it for, a thousand, for thousands of years, corrupting and distorting and destroying the hearts of people that God loves. I want just a side note here. The devil is not our only enemy. We actually have two other enemies, two other battlefronts that we have to to engage war in on a daily basis. One battlefront or enemy we have is what we call, the Bible calls our flesh or our fallen nature, our sinful nature that we inherited from Adam, right? Because Adam sinned, all sin. And because we belong to Adam somewhere way up the family tree, we inherit his fallen nature. In other words, we are born corrupted, spiritually dead, unable to please God, and in desperate need of someone to intervene for us. And unfortunately, even as Christians who now have the Spirit of God, who now have, given, have been given spiritual eyes to see, 
We're in this already but not yet part of God's redemption, meaning that we have, a, a, we have eternal life awaiting for us, a new life, a new body, an uncorruptible body, one that cannot fade away, one that cannot sin, one that is not uh, under the curse of sin, but at the same time, we're not yet there. And because we're not yet there, we also have this, in, this nature that wages war against the spirit that re- takes residence in our lives. And it's really a bummer, isn't it? Because our flesh is so weak, and it always wants to serve itself, which is always contrary to God. It's full of desire. It just desires everything that God is saving us from. So we have our fallen nature that works against us, and we also have the world in which we live, the fallen world. The world is corrupted. What does John say in 1 John 2? Do not love the world or the things of the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful fright of life is from the world. But that is not who you are. You are not from the world. So do not love the things of the world. In reference here, specifically what John is speaking to, what Peter even implicitly highlights for us, is that the world is kind of the word or the term that captures a value system, a perspective, an ethics, anything that is contrary to God. Anything that is contrary to who God is. And so we have two other enemies at work against us. Our own, our own fallen flesh and the world that is also fallen that we take residence in temporarily. But Peter highlights the formidable enemy, the kind of the the source behind it all. You know, at one time, the devil, as Peter refers to it, one time his name was called Lucifer. We oftentimes think of Lucifer in a bad term, but actually that Lucifer was kind of his, before his fall name. God created Lucifer, and his name meant light bearer, and he was God's right-hand angel, so to speak. He was the angel of all angels. Isaiah 14 says that he was called the day star, the sun of dawn. In Ezekiel 28, he was, a, he was considered the signet of perfection and full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. He was anointed the, the guardian cherub. He was blameless in all his ways from the day that he was created. Lucifer was incredibly amazing. Not God amazing, but incredibly Amazing. And he actually thought that about himself too. And that's what led to his downfall. As Isaiah 14 says, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Ezekiel 28 captures, it says that you were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your own splendor. Therefore, Satan or Lucifer at this time went from God's right-hand angel, the angel of all angels, to the object of his wrath and judgment because of his pride. What, is, what, did, what did we say at the very beginning? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God is against those who are prideful, 
but his favor is upon those who are humble. And now Lucifer is described by many other names in Scripture. He's called Satan, which means adversary also. Devil, which means slander. He's also referred to as the serpent because of his craftiness. He's the god of this world. He's the tempter. He's the dragon. He's the evil one. He's the father of lies. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's an angel of light. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. He's a deceiver. All these names describe both his works and character. And Peter says, resist him. Oh, okay. Here's a, an angelic being who is very powerful, who's been deceiving the hearts of people for thousands of years and done an incredible job at it, infamously so. And Peter says, resist him. What hope do you and I have in resisting an angelic being like this? How in the world can we do that? Thank you for asking. (laughs) Three things I want to say here. First, you and I must be aware of his presence and intentions and tactics. We must be aware of his, in, his presence, his intentions, and his tactics. You might have read many of C.S. Lewis's works, but one of his works, he actually identifies the kind of the strategy of the enemy. And C.S. Lewis actually says like that the first tactic of the enemy is to convince us, first of all, that he doesn't actually exist in the first place. One of what Satan does is to make us think, you know what, he doesn't even exist, so you go on, live your life oblivious to the fact that you are actually a victim and pray in his hands. But as Christians, we know better, right? We know that we have an enemy. The Scripture makes it very clear. We have a formidable enemy that's come to take us out, and because we're aware of his presence, because we know that he's against us or opposes us, then his second, second strategy is to literally take you out, an all-out assault. If he can't convince you that he doesn't exist, then he's here to destroy you. He's here to confront you. He's here to cause fear in your life. He's here to, to, to make your life miserable, and he's good at that too. But if that doesn't discourage you, if that doesn't cause you to be unfaithful, then his third strategy is to make you compromise. Let's strike a deal. Remember in Matthew 4 when Jesus was being tempted by the tempter, right? There was, in the midst of his temptations, this, this kind of push to compromise, Obviously, we see the story with Jesus. He didn't fall victim to the strategies of the enemy. But the way we resist our enemy is first and foremost, we must be aware of his presence. We must be aware of his intentions. We must be aware of his tactics. What does Peter say in verse 8? Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Think clearly. Wake up each day knowing that someone is out to get you. Not because you should be fearful by that fact, because as I'll get in a moment, 
greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so we have no reason to fear. We just can't be blindsided by things that we should be aware of. One of the things that most of you know, you know I like to do is I like to go backpacking in the Olympics. If you have not yet done that, I strongly encourage you. It is incredible. We live in one of the most beautiful places in the world, I think. So I look forward to my annual therapy every year out in the Olympics. I love being in God's creation. I love taking it all in. There's so many different diverse parts of this park behind us, and it is incredible. But one thing you learn very quickly about traversing on these trails and sometimes off-trail in the Olympics is this. You can't just, it's not like taking a walk in the park, literally. You can't just kind of take a stroll. There are places in which you are traversing that require you to pay attention to every step because one misstep is your last step till death. There's some harrowing places. I don't tell my wife about them. (laughs) It's better that I don't. Like the last trip, right? The two trips ago. Yeah. Honey, don't worry. Someone just died a week before and someone just fell a week after. But it's okay. We're going to have a great time. The point is, we have to be very attentive to our footing. Sometimes that means going slow and even helping one another. We also have to do this in our spiritual lives. You see, so often it's easy for us to just kind of go through our lives somewhat passively in nature, right? Somewhat just kind of casually, oh, it's just whatever, we're just carefree. I'm not saying carefree is a bad thing. I'm just saying be aware that there are things behind the scenes. There's a a fourth dimension, so to speak. There's a spiritual realm that is constantly at play. And sometimes they take the pressure off to make you feel like we're all good, only to come in and take you out. The enemy knows what he's doing. So we must be aware as followers of Christ. Secondly, we must confront lies with truth. The enemy is a liar. He's an accuser. And we must confront lies with truth. What does Peter say in verse 9? Resist him. How firm in your faith you confront the liar with the truth of God's word. One author, I was reading a book this past week, said this, every way of thinking that is opposed to God, every philosophy, every false doctrine, every lie, every world religion, every worldview, every thought that is raised up against the truth of God is from Satan. The problem is, he often appears as an angel of light. And he disguises error as truth and makes it sound like truth, look like truth and feel like truth. He makes people think they are walking in the light when they're really walking in darkness. He's amazingly effective at making lies believable, sin desirable, temptation unavoidable, and error irresistible. Even knowing the truth does not mean that you are not still vulnerable to falling into sin. Therefore, it is imperative that you and I, we we know the Scripture and we're familiar with the Scripture so well that we are able to discern lies 
Not if, but when we are bombarded with lies by the enemy. You see, even Satan will take Scripture and distort it and corrupt it and twist it. Remember in Matthew 4, the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness? Satan was using Scripture taken out of context for self-serving gain to tempt our Savior. And of course, how did Jesus respond? He used Scripture to confront Scripture that was taken out of context and used for self-serving gain. Brothers and sisters, can I just implore you for a moment? Your greatest weapon in resisting the enemy is that you would be saturated, soaking up the word of truth. So that when that lie, that thought comes to your mind, you can go, wait a second. That doesn't sound like my Jesus at all. That doesn't sound like my Savior one, one iota. We confront lies with truth. Third and finally, be comforted in knowing that you are not alone in your fight against sin and temptation. Resist him, Peter says in verse 9, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brother, brotherhood throughout the world. Again, pointing back to Satan's strategies to discourage us, he will often make us think this, right? I'm the only one. I'm alone in my struggle. Nobody cares. And if they do, they don't want to be bothered by this. Or I'm a total screw-up. I keep falling into the same sin over and over and over again. I'll probably never change. Why keep fighting a fight that I keep failing to win? Ever think those things? Let me just say this, church family. First of all, you're not alone. You're not alone. Part of God's design for his church, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that we would not navigate this thing called life in isolation. But that only works when we can do so in a context that is void of condemnation. The enemy is the condemner. God is a savior. The enemy seeks to point the finger and God takes his hand and seeks to raise you up. You are not alone. We need one another. We get to have one another. Your strategy for resisting Satan at this point may be flawed, yes. But you are not alone. And if the spirit of the resurrected Christ that lives in you says that you are more than a conqueror, then the fact is, the promise of Scripture says that regardless of what you struggle with, whatever sin in your life, you can overcome. 
Not because of your strength, not because of your might, not because you have it all within you, you know, all by your gusto. No, it's because of the Spirit of Christ in you that gives you victory. John also says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can I just say this again? I've said it before. God is eager to forgive you. Again, the lie would say God is tired of forgiving you for the same thing. And so we avoid the throne of grace in time of need. But the truth is God is eager to forgive you. And the way in which we come clean and the, and the enslaving power of sin is no longer holding us captive is in the process of confession. So guess what? We confess initially at, a, at the point of salvation, and then we just get used to it. It is a lifestyle for the believer. Confession ought to be a daily reality in our lives, unless, of course, you're one of those unique people that don't sin sometimes. Now, confession of sin is just what we do. It's how we stay in right relationship, not because our relationship is on the line. It's how we are able to receive the love of God in Christ Jesus at every moment. I love what Paul says in Romans 5, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. That means you cannot out-sin God's grace in your life. Isn't that incredible? You cannot out-sin God's grace and love in your life. The lie is he's done with you. Grace has a limit. And guess what the Bible says? Grace is limitless because God is eternal. He is grace. You cannot out-sin his grace in your life. So may we not be a victim of the enemy any longer. May we realize the resources that God provides for us. May we be a family, a church family, brothers and sisters in Christ in which we get to walk in freedom, knowing that, yes, we are weak and frail in and of ourselves, but in Christ we are more than conquerors. We can be victorious. Resist the devil, James says, and he will flee from you. You know, there's a number of reasons that contribute to the rise and fall of churches. And there are certain factors that must be present in any biblically healthy church. For us, as a church family, to be a healthy church family that glorifies God and a church family that fulfills our divine purposes, there are certain character qualities and attitudes and perspectives that must be adopted and implemented by all of us. But the foundational virtue to all godly character and Christian conduct is the virtue of humility. Our spiritual health as a church depends on an ever-present spiritual, uh, spirit-filled humility. 
Our ability to resist the enemy begins with a mindset and a posture of humility. Unity in the body of Christ can only be realized and experienced when we clothe ourselves in humility toward one another because it is only in humility that we can love one another as Christ has unconditionally loved us. I read this in closing before our final song. Philippians chapter 2, Paul the Apostle in his own definition and description of humility says this, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God opposes the proud, but he gives favor to the humble. Jesus, our perfect example, modeled that for us. He modeled humility. And as a result of his perfect display of humility, we see also that God exalted him to a level that he deserved. Is he worthy? Is Jesus worthy? I think so.